Can that be, you ask? Well, I'm referring to the new year in the church calendar. Those of you that have been around the church for, for a while know that. This morning we celebrate the first Sunday in the season of Advent, and this morning another new year to the life of the church begins. The season of Advent, like that of Lent, is a time of penitence and a time of reflection. During Lent, we meditate and focus on the passion of our Lord. The final days here on earth, His arrest, His trial, His suffering, and death on the cross. And the season of Lent is climaxed on Easter morning when we celebrate His resurrection. During the season of Advent, we're called to think about something new occurring in the lives of men and women everywhere. Not only do we focus on Jesus' first coming into the world as an infant, but also about His second coming in all His glory and majesty and wonder. On Christmas Eve, we'll celebrate the first coming of Jesus. But that's something that's already taken place. And that's something that we reflect on during the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas. But our reflection during the season of Advent should focus more on Jesus' second coming. Something that we all look forward to and something that we're all called to prepare for. With the beginning of the new church year and during the season of Advent, we'll be experiencing some, some changes in the service. We've already experienced some of those this morning. During this penitential season, we'll begin the service differently. The confession is moved to the beginning of the service. And it helps to remind us that we need to come humbly to God's presence each time we come to worship. We'll omit the singing of the Gloria in order to be reminded that this is a solemn time of the year. But for today and for the next three Sundays, we'll also be using Rite 2 and Eucharistic Prayer B in the service. It begins on page 367. But you also have a service booklet. The prayers that are used in the service can be traced back to the 3rd century to one of the oldest surviving Eucharistic prayers that we have. And it should help to draw our attention to the incarnation of Jesus as he came into the world in the form of a small child. God made man. The Word made flesh. Another thing that changes from this morning is that, that we've moved into your C in our readings. What am I doing? That's what we'll be doing over the next 12 months. We'll be using Luke's Gospel as our primary Gospel text. Now, in this morning's gospel lesson, we heard a warning concerning the destruction of Jerusalem for the next two Sundays. We'll focus our attention on John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was a forerunner of the Messiah, the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry here on earth. And we'll pay attention to Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And I'll be talking about John and Paul during our Advent study next Sunday. And then finally, on the fourth study of Advent, just before Christmas Eve, we'll look at the story of Mary as she visits her cousin Elizabeth. And we'll hear the beautiful words of the prayer of Mary, the Magnificat. When this young girl gives thanks to God for the miracle that's about to take place in her life. But before we begin to look at this morning's lesson this morning, I'd like to read just the last few verses for you again. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And the day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times. 
praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. I think we need to hear those last verses again to really get the meaning of what Jesus was attempting to say to his followers this morning. Greeting. There are two themes that run through this morning's lesson. The first is the concept of the second coming of Jesus, and the second is a warning to be watchful prior to that time. To better understand this morning's gospel lesson, we need to look back at that Jewish background that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. That's what these, the background is what these verses are, are written to, and I've spoken about the, the Jewish concept of what was commonly known as the Day of the Lord. Talked about that a couple of weeks ago. This was a time when the people believed that God would intervene and restore the chosen people to their rightful place in the world. It was, it was called the Day of the Lord, but it wasn't just a, a single day. The Day of the Lord was a time, but we have no idea how long that time might be. The, the word that's used in the scripture was kairos. It's a special time, but it's a time that can't be easily defined on a calendar. But before the Day of the Lord, there'd be a time of terror and trouble when the world would, would be shaken to its very foundation. The day of the Lord was always associated with the day of judgment, which is also not a single day. When the day of the Lord would be followed by a new world, a new age, a new gospel for God's people. This thinking created a, a conflicting sense of both optimism and bleak pessimism. On one hand, the people truly believed that the day would come when God would come forward and rescue his people. We heard words expressing that anticipation in our reading from the psalm this morning. But at the same time, the people envisioned a time when the world would become so corrupted that a new world could only come after there had been a complete destruction of all that was old, both anticipation and fear. Between the times of the Old and New Testaments, the Jewish people never knew what it was to be free. They were constantly under the rule of one oppressing power after another. And for this reason, it was very understanding that their hopes and dreams for this new age would come to be a very vivid picture in their mind. It would be something that they longed for, something that they dreamed about. During this time, there was a form of religious literature that became very important to the people. The word apocalypse means the unveiling, a discovery of something that had been hidden an understanding of something that had been previously a mystery. The people of the New Testament would have been very familiar with these writings, which contained these dreams and visions of what would happen when the day of the Lord occurred. These writings represented the unveiling of the people's hopes and dreams for a new age. And in these writings you find much of the Old Testament imagery. These writings drew pictures of the unpaintable. They attempted to describe the unspeakable, but they were never intended to be roadmaps to the future or timetables of things to come. They, they really were. In verse 25, Jesus said there would be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress among all nations, confusing by the roaring of the sea and the waves. And in verse 27, he said, then they will see the Son of Man. There's that term again. The Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. These are, these are similar to the words that we heard last week from the prophet Daniel, remember? Jesus is relating the dreams and visions that the prophets and the apostolic writers had spoken about. He was speaking in terms that they would have been familiar with. 
These were words that were meant to make an impression. But I don't believe they were meant to be taken literally. There, there will be a second coming. And when that day comes, I suspect it will be something to behold. But even Jesus told his disciples that he knew no more about the end of time than they did. That, that, that's a rather interesting statement, isn't it? Jesus admitting that there's something heavenly, something eternal, something godly. He didn't know anything about it. But that's exactly what he tells his disciples in the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel. He said, no one knows about that day or hour or even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. And yet we have today, and we've had for generations, men and women who claim to figure it all out, that they can take the scriptures and they can point to, the, to various things and define all the examples and illustrations referred to in the apostolic writings of both the Old and the New Testament. And then they attempt to tell us exactly what all that means. I, I find that interesting. Actually, I find it unbelievable. <laughs> I've listened to some of these people in the past. They can tell you how the serpent with the iron sword described in the book of Daniel is, is, is Russia. And the two-headed lion is around in Iraq. They can go to explain in great detail how every event in recent years relates to one of the examples in the apostolic writings of the scriptures. And from that, they draw the conclusion that we're living in the last days. The interesting thing is that 60 years ago, there were those who took those same examples and described the Third Reich and Hitler and Mussolini. And 30 years before that, it was the Kaiser and the Turks. History does repeat itself. And throughout history, there have been those who have attempted to use their own wisdom and their own understanding of the scriptures to prove that we're living in the last days. What, what conclusions might we draw from all this? I'm not sure. I don't believe for a moment that God has decided that for whatever reason, he'd bestow this special knowledge on some preacher who wants his or her own TV show or, or to get a new book contract. Then who am I? What do I know? A few years ago, if you were to truly believe these forecasters of the future, you wouldn't have needed to do any shopping before Christmas time because the world was going to end according to the Mayan calendar, remember? So what is it that Jesus was attempting to tell the people of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? I believe Jesus was warning the people about several things, several things that would come to pass. And in each instance, they did. We see this better when we take the time to read the entire chapter. Jesus describes the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus predicted that not a single stone of the great temple in Jerusalem would remain unturned. He warned the people. He said, when you see these things happening, flee to the mountains. But what happened? In the year 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was placed under siege by the Romans, and the people fled not to the mountains, but to the temple seeking safety, and the people as well as the temple were destroyed by the army of Rome. They had heard the words of warning, but they failed to heed them. Another thing that Jesus warned about was the persecutions that would later come to his followers. And again, his prediction came true. The difference here is that the disciples chose to follow him in spite of all those tragic experiences that he said would befall them. The thing that Jesus warned about was the dangers that would fall upon the church. He said there were those who would come and twist his teachings for their own benefit. And he warned the people in advance to, to look out for heresies and lies that would evade the life of the church. 
Unfortunately, that, that warning is still a danger today. And it has been throughout the history of the church. This is not the first time in the life of the church there have been those who have twisted God's words to suit their own wishes. This is something that actually began in New Testament times. Remember the council in Jerusalem? And Paul addressed these in his writing to several of the early New Testament churches. These warnings all come in addition to the warnings about the second coming. And in each instance, Jesus' words were spoken within the context of the vision of the day of the Lord. The imagery of the day of the Lord and the second coming are all woven together in a wonderful way. Whereby we can understand it, and yet not totally understand it at all. It's these last verses that I read a moment ago that I believe can help this morning's lesson be more meaningful. It's another warning, but it's a warning for a need to be watchful. If we live in the constant possibility of the intervention of God at any time, and if we live with the possibility that Christ may come again at any moment, and if the seasons are really only known to God alone, then there is a need to be ever ready every day because we are living in the last days. Man's born, and then from that moment on, he's living toward his own death, toward his last days. He just doesn't know when that may come. In the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, When you hear wars and reports of wars, do not be disturbed. These things must happen, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In certain places, there will be earthquakes, there will be famine. And these are the beginnings of the birth of a new age. I heard those words read just two weeks ago. Jesus tells us that we're like men who know that our master's coming. We just don't know when. We live in the shadow of eternity. But there's no reason to be fearful with expectations as long as we realize that each day stands on its own. We're called to live our lives in such a way that it won't matter when Jesus comes. I was looking at one of Carol's books, diabetic books, last week. And the cover story had to do with stress and how people today are literally worrying themselves to death. Some of the doctors here may Notice the greatest number of heart attacks occur in the morning hours following a stressful night's sleep. When people get up still stressed out over the problems of their daily lives. A Christian must never come to think that he or she is living in a settled situation. Life is always changing. And we must be a people who live in a permanent state of readiness and expectation. But faith in Jesus Christ removes the stress of our daily lives because although we may not know what tomorrow brings, we know the one who does. As we begin this new season of Advent, may we be reminded once again that we are all called to prepare ourselves to meet Jesus face to face. I learned that lesson in last week's reading. Every individual is going to have to make their own decision concerning their relationship with God. We may not know when that time will come. But we do know that it will. And our task is to be ready. In some respects, every one of us is living in the last days. We may all still be here when Jesus comes. It's a pretty good chance we may not be, but who knows? But either way, we need to be ready for that day. We need to be prepared for that day. Some time ago, I heard a wonderful story about President Eisenhower. I can say President Eisenhower in this audience and you'll know who I'm talking about. <laughs> I've spoken to some groups who got a blank stare. 
It seems while he was in office, he visited Denver, Colorado, and while he was there, he learned that there was a young six-year-old boy that was dying of cancer. And the young boy had one single wish. He wanted to meet his hero. He wanted to meet General Delight David Eisenhower. President Eisenhower learned about the little boy. He made the decision to pay him a visit while he was in Denver. One morning, the, the president's limo, long black limousine, arrived in front of the young boy's house. The president and his aide knocked on the front door, and a man in jeans and a t-shirt and a day-old beard came to the door. The president's aide explained the president of the United States had come to see his son. And the young boy peered from around his daddy's legs. The president bent down, shook the little boy's hand. They visited for a while, and then the president asked there, invited the young boy out to see his limousine. Offered to take him for a spin through the neighborhood. When they returned home, the president gave the boy a big hug, and then he and the aide were on their way. The entire neighborhood was in a buzz. Everyone had heard about the visit. Everyone was excited. Everyone except the young boy's father. It seems that all he could think about was that the president of the United States had come to his house and he had gone to the front door and changed the t-shirt with a day-old beard. <laughs> Apparently the man never got over the feeling of embarrassment. It ate away at him for the rest of his life. He had been given an unexpected opportunity and he hadn't been prepared. Now, am I suggesting that President Trump might appear on your doorstep sometime? <laughs> I doubt it. But he might send you a tweet. <laughs> Am I suggesting that the end of time is going to occur during our lifetime? No, but it might. The point is we need to be ready. We don't want to get caught unprepared. We should live every day of our lives as though it could be our last. What am I suggesting? Are there words that need to be said? Are there hugs that need to be given? Is there a letter that needs to be written? Is there a forgiveness that needs to be extended? Are there relationships in your life that need to be mended? Are there misunderstandings and grudges that need to be resolved and put in their place? My stepsister's uncle died just a few weeks ago. I was asked to do his funeral in Dallas and Orlando. As I looked at this morning's lessons, I remember preparing for that funeral service, and I couldn't, I couldn't help but remember that nothing is certain in life. There's no guarantees. To the best of my knowledge, Rex had lived a good life. It had been a full life. And he was prepared for the end, and his house was in order. Could that be said about each of us? There's 22 more shopping days before Christmas. <laughs> but I hope that you'll at least use the next three weeks to think about and reflect on what the significance of the Advent season really means in each of our lives. Why in the world would God choose to send his son to this world? Why did he allow his chosen people to kill his son? What kind of love did it take for you and me to cause God to ask his son to die on the cross so that we might be able once and for all to break the shackles of sin and receive everlasting life? The answer to those questions should be our challenge during the next few weeks. Hopefully we can focus on God's love for each of us as we strive to, to share that love with those that we come in contact with between now and Christmas. Hopefully we can reflect on that love as we do our last minute shopping, as we write our cards and notes to friends and loved ones. May this season of Advent not be so much about getting ready to celebrate the holiday season, filled with parties and get-togethers, as it is a time to give God thanks 
for what it means that he sent his only son into the world to provide a way for our salvation. And that he is coming again in all his glory. The season of Advent is meant to be a time of reflection. It's meant to be a time of awareness. It's meant to be a time when we experience once again a new beginning. May this Advent season be just that. 